Well, before we hear from Pastor Brady this morning, I wanted to challenge him and challenge you as a congregation as we begin a new chapter in ministering and worshiping together. Johnny, can you bring my... Thank you. There we go. We are welcoming today, and we are starting a new chapter. I don't know if you've ever read a good book. I hope you have. But as you read a good book and you get to the end of a chapter, you don't want to put it down. You want to keep reading. And isn't it true sometimes when you're reading those books and it's late at night, you're looking at the clock and wondering how many more chapters you can read and how much you can and if you've got to go to bed or anything like that. So when we read good books, we come to a new chapter and it continues and there is new excitement, there's new challenges, there's new opportunities. And that is true in life, that is true with the life of a church. And so now we come to a new chapter in Olive Branch's 140 years of history. I know none of us were around 140 years ago in 1879 when there were Christians who in this area wanted to have a church and a witness of Jesus Christ right here in Blackridge. And I don't think Blackridge has gotten any bigger or had any more anything happen in it since then except for this Blackridge Coliseum right here that we have that we're worshiping in today. I know this was a big deal when the Blackridge Coliseum came to town here. But we've had a long history and a new chapter is starting. Now, as we start a new chapter, I do want to challenge you and encourage you. And so first I'm going to uh, challenge Pastor Brady. First Peter chapter 5 says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you. Not overseen out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here are Peter's words to fellow shepherds, fellow elders, fellow pastors. And so today, I want to challenge you, Brady, and give you three things to think about. Where are you, by the way? Oh, there you are. Okay, I'm not looking for you. I should talk to you when I'm speaking. First, keep God first in your life. It's ironic that pastors are often assumed to be godly and close to God. So in some ways, it's harder for pastors to be close to God. Because you already assume we are, so it's easier for us to fake it and to put on a facade and to honestly be hypocrites about it. Because you wouldn't expect anything different from us. So we, in a sense, have to work harder than maybe you do to stay close to God. And we are also tempted to equate our busyness in church life with spirituality or a relationship with God. And those are not the same. And so, Brady, I challenge you to keep God first, even when church is busy. Even when people in the church will tell you what God has taught, called you to do. And even when you are tempted to 
make someone happy in the church or keep the church going and are tempted to leave God and take care of that. Remember what Jesus said to Martha when she complained about Mary that there's only one thing that is needed and that is your relationship with God. So keep that first because busy church life and honestly church people will try, not on purpose, but try to keep you busy and keep you away from God. Also be a humble servant. God doesn't call us as pastors, uh, pastors, uh, CEOs. He doesn't call us bosses. He doesn't call us even ranchers. He calls us shepherds. That is, there's a reason why we are called shepherds. And it's not because you all are sheep. It's because we are to lead gently. And we are to uh, lead by example. And we are to serve along beside you. Remember, Jesus, who is God, came to this earth and washed His disciples' feet, showing how much He loved them before He went to the cross and died for us. And so, Brady, we are to be humble as we serve and shepherd the church. We are to have that servant attitude. As Jesus said to the disciples, not to lord it over someone. As Peter says here, not doing it to make money. Not doing it to lord it over and be the boss and, and get to tell people what to do. But to humbly serve and lead by example. That's the third one. If we are leading, then we need to be out in front. We should be an example. As Paul told the Corinthians, he said, follow me. Uh, imitate me. I, I pray that that's how my life is. And I pray for your life that we would be bold enough because we're close enough to God and living a life that is an example that we can tell the congregation. Y'all want to know what it's like to be a Christian and follow God? Just do what I'm doing. Now that's a pretty bold statement to make. But that's how it should be. And so I, I encourage you and challenge you to be that example. To live a life of holiness and godliness and righteousness. And to uh, be a pastor whom this church can live their life like yours. And if they do so, they will be close to God. So church, I want to challenge you. The first thing I want you to do is to pray. I know when we talk about prayer, sometimes we we just put it on the back burner. Oh yeah, I know. Christians pray, God listens, we talk. We don't think of it as, as important and life-changing and, and universe-changing as it is. I mean, Paul, is as gifted as he was and as close to God as he was, he still coveted the prayers of his churches. Pray at all times, Paul says, in the Spirit with every prayer and request. And stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me. Paul needed the prayers. We as pastors need your prayers. We are under constant 
spiritual battle and attacks by Satan. Satan knows that if he can bring down a church leader, he can bring down a pastor, he'll bring the whole church down. So he's going to bring his attacks more on us than on you all. We are constantly trying to decide what is the will of God and what is right for our church. And we're constantly trying to balance uh, honestly doing things that uh, please the church, but also things that please God. And sometimes it's not easy to know. That's why we need you to pray for us. Uh, for us. And pray specifically for these things. Pray for me and for Brady that we would be protected from Satan, his temptations, and his destructiveness. Pray for our families, that our families and our marriages will remain strong, because that's where Satan will attack. Pray for us to be godly and spiritual and truly put God first in our life. Uh, pray for us to have wisdom to know what to do. Pray that we would be encouraged and filled with joy as we serve. And that's why I also ask you to support Brady. Support him with prayer. Support him with encouraging words. Support him with love. Uh, I know there's no perfect pastor. And, and we know our weaknesses. And we know our shortcomings. And so often we don't need to be reminded of that. Okay, I know you can tell us that. That would be obvious to us. But when you point out the obvious, our weaknesses and where we're not great and the giftedness we don't have, that doesn't really encourage us a whole lot. We already know that. So it's very helpful, though, when you do support us and encourage us with things we're doing well. It's the same for you. If I, if I or anyone in your life just always reminded you of how you fail and how, fall, how you fall short... How does that make you want to do anything other than just do that, fall short? But when there are words of encouragement, that, that lifts your spirits to continue the battle and continue serving. So be generous with your encouraging words, with simple ways of showing support to Brady and his family. Just a kind word, just a thank you for your ministry. Just simple things like that go a long way. You know, uh, just the... Many of you do send cards. I know sending cards and writing notes going out of fashion now with uh, text messages and uh, emails. But do you know that every encouraging card I have gotten in 26 years of ministry, I've kept those. And I go back to them. And I read them. Now I've got some other notes that weren't so encouraging. They went in the trash can. Okay? But the encouraging cards... I still have them. So, whatever way you can, be an encourager. I know pastors can become lazy, and pastors can uh, be, uh, un I mean, I know we can be people who get lazy, don't do our job. And if it comes to that, then you do have to kind of kick us in the rear, okay? And that's what you're there for, too. But until that point, when it becomes obvious that we're just, just, Skating through, just mailing it in. Until that point, be encouraging. The last thing, church, well, here's the verse I wanted to remind you of. 
Uh, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law of the prophets, Jesus says, which we often say is the golden rule, and we think of it as we treat brothers and sisters. That can be true of pastors in a church, too. Uh, you, you expect certain things from your pastor, don't you? To be kind and encouraging and uplifting. If you come to a pastor with a concern, you don't expect the pastor to berate you or put you down or make your life worse. So if you don't expect that from pastors, then why don't you treat us the same way? Okay? And lastly, then we'll let Pastor Brady pray. This is a hard one for a church to obey or to submit to leaders, but it can't be more clear than this scripture in Hebrews. Obey your leaders. And submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Of course, pastors aren't to be obeyed blindly. A pastor can lead a church into sin, or lead a church away from God. You don't obey those pastors, you disobey them and obey the Lord. That should be obvious. But also, remember, pastors are in authority over a church for a reason. God's put them there. And just as we are commanded to obey the government, and as we are commanded to obey those in authority over us, pastors are in authority in a church. And they should be obeyed and submitted to. And I always challenge churches in this because it's easy to submit to someone when they're doing everything you want them to do. Isn't that easy? It, you know, if Pastor Brady comes and you have this wish list of things that he would do and the way he would be, and he did all of them, oh, I'll submit to you, Pastor Brady. I'll do anything you want because he's doing exactly what you want. Now he decides to do something that you're not too sure about, or maybe you wouldn't do it that way, or you don't like it. That's when this verse really becomes. Uh, you have to apply it. Now you're submitting. Now you're obeying. This is when it's hard. It's easy when he's doing everything you want him to do. So keep that in mind. The pastors, yes, we serve. And we work aside. And we work together. And we are a family. But there are times when a pastor, there will be a time when Pastor Brady will have to be the leader that the church submits to and obeys. So church, that's my challenge to you. Ready, that's my challenge to you. They've heard enough of me. Would you please come and share with us what the Lord has laid on your heart? We welcome you. We're excited that you're here. And it's your time. Now, I'm used to having a little thing in front of me, so if I steal that later, I'm, I promise I'll give it back to the band. Um, I mean, this has been an awesome experience so far. I mean, this is uh, quite literally a welcome wagon. I didn't see a wagon outside, but it feels like there definitely was one. So Laura and I and Benji, because he has no choice, we are incredibly grateful for everything that you guys as, as leaders and as the church have done for us. Um, if it's the support, the kindness, the cards, everything has just been, uh, we've been so grateful for that. And we're, we're hoping for this to be a, a long uh, relationship that we have with you, partially because I'm tired of moving, but also y'all seem to be a, an amazing congregation, so we're looking forward to the time that we have together. So if you have a Bible with you, I don't have the slides up there because past Brady's pretty dumb, future Brady's better, hopefully, uh, but if you have a Bible or you have your phone, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 
11. Then we're going to go until about verse 8 of chapter 3. So what I want to do with the time that we have this morning is to paint a picture to you of, of what ministry in general is supposed to look like and what I hope that my ministry looks like as well as I'm, as I'm ministering to you all here. And, and this is not just for me specifically. This is, uh, in a sense, Paul's challenge to the church, that, that Christians are called to reflect this life that he is writing about to Titus. So if you're unfamiliar with the book of Titus, it's this little three-chapter book towards the end of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And what's different about this letter is that it's addressed just to one person, to Titus, uh, and it's different from some of his other books, because you're familiar with like Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, they're all written to be read aloud to the church. It's kind of like a, a, a spoken sermon to them almost. But here, Paul is writing to Titus. And what he's doing is he, he is he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing to Titus, who is the leader of this church, who will then take what Paul is telling Titus and then giving that information to the other Christians that are in his fellowships. So as we're going to go through this, you're going to see that Paul, he's not writing some sort of new information. Like what Titus is hearing here is not something that is going to, I don't want to say necessarily blow his mind, but it's not something that's new. This is something that Titus, as the pastor, as the leader of this church, should already know. Something that Christians in general are called to know. So when we look through this chapter, we're going to see Paul using the words, remind them. So he's talking to the church, saying, remind them of this. Tell them this. And in a sense, as he's doing this, he's also reminding Titus, because it's important for us to, in a sense, reteach ourselves the gospel uh, incredibly frequently. So like Peter kind of says in 2 Peter, I'm hoping to stir up for us by way of reminder the things that we are called to do to look at or how to behave as the church. So this is a message that is mainly for believers, but there's also going to be a very important part that kind of in the middle where if you are not a believer or if maybe you're, you're just kind of got one foot in, one foot out, that this will be a great introduction to what Christianity is called to look like. And maybe if you've had a not-so-great experience in the church, you can see really what the Lord calls us to be as the church. So I'm going to open up in prayer, and then we will dive right on in. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the, the welcome that my family and I have received, and thank you for this church. I pray that as we come to your word this morning, that, that we're reminded that, that you are the, the, the one who is sovereign over all, that you are powerful over all, that that this is not a day for me, but this is a day for you, that we can hear your word, that we can see you in all of your glory. And I just pray that we can rejoice in that together. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to read from verse 11 to verse 3, and then we're going to kind of you know, decipher that a little bit, and then we're going to jump over to verse 4 a little bit later on. So here's what Paul says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So here we start to see these duties of the Christian. If we look at verses 12, verse 15, and 1 and 2, we, we see what we are called to do as believers. Now, some of these things, I don't know if you've noticed, it borders on impossible. Like, it, 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 there's so much in here that it, you would think, that sounds really hard. Like, that sounds like that's going to be a lot of work. And you are right, it is impossible. If we just look at, you know, some of these things, renouncing ungodliness, renouncing worldly passion, being submissive to authorities, to speak evil of no one, to show not just courtesy, but perfect courtesy towards others, that, that, that's difficult. Like, we struggle with that. And, even if, and we're just going to narrow it down to the first two. Just, if we look at renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, that, that, it doesn't just sound impossible, that is impossible. That is something that requires a supernatural occurrence to take place. So if we were to kind of simplify what this means, it, it means that we, we need to renounce everything that goes against God's will, everything that goes against God's glory, everything that goes against God's nature. Now we know that we are primed to go against God. In uh, Romans 1, 28-32, we see the mindset and the lies that mankind naturally has towards God. So Paul says there, And since they, they being mankind, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Sounds like a nice group of people, right? Like, and yet when we take a step back, this is describing us. This is not describing one specific group of people. This is not describing, like Paul's not writing just to the Romans. He's not just writing to Gentiles. He is saying, this is the state of mankind apart from Jesus. So now we see that, that what Paul is calling us, or calling us to do, to renounce sin, to renounce worldliness, to renounce ungodliness, that's impossible because our minds and hearts naturally gravitate towards sin. So how can we possibly live the life that Paul is describing in this passage? And luckily in verse 11, Paul tells us, and, and I'm glad that we, we sang this is amazing grace because it really ties in nicely here. So that was not planned. So that was nice. Paul says in verse 11, he starts off, for the grace of God has appeared. And then from there, we see and connect the arrival of God's grace to the Christ-centered actions of the believers. So it's only by the grace of God that we are saved. And it's only through this continuation of that grace that we be able to live the life that is holy and pleasing to the Lord. So if the grace of God doesn't come, the rest of what Paul tells us to do doesn't happen. It's impossible to happen. So unless there is grace, unless God is acting and moving first, this stuff isn't going to happen. So we see how we live for the glory of God, but then we get to the, the, the meat of what do we really need to do for the glory of God. Are you tracking with me? We see how, now we're seeing... What do we need to do for it? So when we come to this passage, Paul's describing to us what the Christian life is supposed to look like. We know that apart from the grace of God, we're powerless to live in this 
way. And I know that we've read a lot this morning that could be like a hundred different little sermons of all these things that we are called to do. So instead of necessarily looking back on all these verses, and I know that we're probably ready for lunch, we are going to uh, simplify it further. And, and we see Paul do this in Philippians 1, 20 through 22, which hopefully the Midland High Schoolers remember because we went over this past Wednesday night. I won't quiz you on it. I don't want to look that bad this early on. So, let's see if you all remember. Here's what Paul says. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. So here Paul's talking about magnifying Christ in two distinct ways, in his life and in his death. So Paul's hope, and in any circumstance, that he would magnify Christ. So what can we as Christians gather from this passage? I'm glad you asked. That's the next thing that's coming. So... The purpose of the Christian life is that Christ would look magnificent. That we are here to live for the glory of God. So that in anything that we do as Christians, people would look at us and think, Wow, Christ looks like there's something in this guy's life that I want. There's something in there that I need. So Paul, he says that if he is to live, that means fruitful labor for him. Now, if you've noticed, he doesn't separate spiritual from his physical life. If the Lord is going to let Paul remain on earth, Paul sees this as this great opportunity to labor on behalf of the gospel. He sees this as, a, you know, he sees life as having a purpose. That if he is here on this earth, he is living for the glory of God so that others might see the glory of God. So this is not just a special opportunity for Paul. This is not just a special opportunity for, for one Christian throughout history. This is an unbelievable opportunity for all of us. So as long as we are on this earth, we have this opportunity to live for the glory of God. So John Piper, he, he broke down this passage a little bit more. He says, so he's talking about Paul. He says, so his fruitful labor that he's staying alive for is labor to increase the joy of the faith of the Philippians. If they have greater joy by embracing Jesus, that is believing Jesus in faith, Jesus is made to look magnificent. So Paul knows his purpose. Paul knows his place. My, my hope is that, that I don't see myself go past that. I, I, I like, I, I explained to the students in the past that what we need to do is to be very small in the hands of an amazing God. Like, just be small. Just be little. It's very cozy in there here. And just let God hold you in his love into, as that's happening, be small but still live in pursuit of him. So when we flip back to Titus 2 and 3, we read that these things that the Christian is called to do, like be self-controlled, be submissive, to be obedient, be gentle. All these things, they're tools by which we might point to our own changed lives in Christ. And as we're doing this, we're pointing to the greatness of our Savior. So for the believer, they see the joy of embracing Christ. Like as, as we come together in church, we're worshiping, worshiping together. Like that's encouraging, right? Like as you guys go out and do ministry, other believers see that and they're encouraged by all of this. I've been a reading the book of Acts in my own quiet time, and just seeing how Paul is, can do all of these things and how it says how the believers were encouraged by it. And there's so many parts in the Bible where you see, like the apostles, they get beaten up, they get like whipped, and they, and, and they do something weird, they come out and they're rejoicing. Like they're walking out and they're like, look at this, you can see my bones. And this is awesome. 
And so what they're doing is, is that if you would think that normally you would see this and you would be discouraged. But I know, Benji, it does sound pretty bad, doesn't it? I hope that was him. It was, I got it. I did that once uh, back in Georgia and it was the wrong kid, so it was weird. Uh, I don't think Benji was in there. Uh, so they see this happening. Like Naturally, that doesn't sound right. But when we see us acting as the church, we see God move. We see the glory of Christ. We see the gospel active and alive in the lives of the church. So for believers, we're encouraged by this. Now for unbelievers, it's the same sort of thing. They see the magnificence of what Christ can do in the heart of a person. I'm so encouraged by the life of Paul. Because Paul himself admitted just how horrible he was. And as bad as he was, that did not stop God from pursuing him. And so me, being aware of my sin now... I can almost, I feel like sometimes I can look at Paul and say, you might be bad, but I feel like I'm worse. And that, I don't know if that's humility or if that's stupidity, it's one of the two. But we're, we're encouraged by this. Before we come to faith, we can see Christ in the lives of Christians. And in that, we see that he is glorious. So there's this problem that, we fit, that, this, that, that a lot of people are going to face that we almost seem unaware of. And it's, it's partially of what I'm about to share. That's why I'm encouraged to do ministry in the way that I do. I believe that, that there's a reason as to why so many people walk away from the church. I think that one of the reasons that we see teenagers doing this, and I, I forget the exact number of it, but there, there was a study done not too long ago where it said that if you were to have 100 students right up here uh, that were about to graduate, 96 out of 100 of them would leave the church by the time they graduated. That leaves four people that stay in the church. And I think part of the reason that this is, is because we're not necessarily aware of what the Christian life entails. We're not really sure of what we are going to face. So, if we look back in Philippians 1, Paul mentions death and the life that he's living is fruitful labor. Now, those are two difficult things, right? Nobody wants to die. Hard work is hard work. A lot of us are not necessarily prepared for that. Like, any kind of hard work that you do with your hands, or even, like, if we just use the word labor, if you've had a child, you know labor is not a walk in the park, Right? Like, it is difficult. So when Paul says that he sees his life as hard labor for Christ, he means it. Being a Christian in a sinful, fallen world is difficult. And I think that a lot of times, younger Christians, they're not necessarily ready for it. Christianity is not a passive experience. We don't come to faith in Christ and he says, all right, put your feet up, you're done. So what I'm worried about is that there's so many... People, not just students, but so many people that have been sold a cookie-cutter, sunshine and rainbows Christianity instead of what the gospel truly teaches. So when Jesus tells us to pick up our cross and follow him daily, that's not a walk on the beach, I think. You're not going to go down to K Jewelers and buy your little silver cross and say, I've done it, Lord, I'll wear it every day. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. So I'm worried that... that Many people, when they, they come to Christ, or, or they, they think they come to Christ, they think that all their problems are just going to go away and that the easy life is, is theirs for the taking. So I don't want students to hear the gospel as this get-out-of-hell-free card from Monopoly. It is, it, it, it's sad, because the moment bad things happen, the moment they lose a loved one, the moment persecution comes, the moment they're challenged in any way, they start to question everything, Right? Like that, there's that crumbling, there's the seed that, that doesn't take root that seems to happen. So what does it mean to follow 
Jesus. My hope is that every student here knows what it means to follow Jesus. That, that the labor, it will be hard, but the, the eternal reward is far worth it. So we are going to teach these students the hard truth of Christianity. I remember when I, I first started getting into ministry, um, one of the things that I was very adamant against was that we were not going to be a group of Christians that mainly ate pizza. Like, pizza parties are great. People will come through the door for pizza, but people will stay in the door for Jesus. And so I knew that that was what I was going to do. That was what I was going to pursue. And like David Platt has said, I don't want to take the lifeblood out of Christianity and put Kool-Aid in its place so it tastes better for people. I would rather see five students have a deeper relationship with Christ and then go out and change the world for the gospel than see hundred come in and, you know, just walk away a day later. Thanks, brother. All right. I told you, we're in a quiet church. I'm not used to amens. So Paul, one of the things that, that we need to be aware of is the seriousness of our sins. And Paul brings it up in Titus 3, uh, verse 3. We've already kind of read it, but if we look at it again... He's pointing to the past life before we come to faith in Jesus. And he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Now this is one of the most humbling verses in Scripture. Paul's pointing backwards to better show the difference between who we are now in Christ and who we used to be. This, he, he looks to the old creation and uses it to point to the new. So we're never going to understand truly God's the, the depths of God's mercy and forgiveness if we're not going to recognize the seriousness of our own sin. And if we fail to realize just how far we fall from God's standard of perfection, then we're not going to ever really appreciate just how much He's done and what He has saved us from. In verse 3, we see this large degree of separation from the Lord. We see the depravity of our souls, and yet in the very next verse, we get hope. Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Now this is something that I need to be reminded of every day because we often have this tendency of thinking I need to be this good to be worthy of being saved. But Paul here is saying that, you know, it's not about your goodness, it's not about your kindness, but when the loving kindness of Jesus Christ appeared, God saved you. So even if we hear the gospel one time or a thousand times, this is something that we need to be reminded of daily, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So in the next five verses... Paul gives this mini-gospel presentation. And you'll notice that in verse 3, he starts with the bad news. Now, uh, there's an old pastor and theologian who passed away not too long ago named Francis Schaeffer. And he was once asked, you know, how would you present the gospel to someone if you only had about an hour to do it? If you're on a train or on a plane, you only had one hour to do it. And here's what he said. He said, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he is morally dead. Then I'd take 10 to 15 minutes to preach the gospel. I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get to the answer without having a man realize the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt in the presence of God. Now, you, don't, you, don't, you can't understand that you need to be saved if you don't know what you're being saved from. Does that make sense? So we need to know this information. If, if I was to go up to somebody just randomly on the street and said, Sir, do you want to be saved? There's a pretty good chance he would either punch me in the face or say... Saved from what? Because we, like to us, to us church people, we know about sin. We know that we need a Savior. But not everybody knows that. So J.C. Ryle, he once said, Never does a person see any beauty in Christ as a Savior until they discover that they are a lost and ruined sinner. And then C.S. Lewis, he, he kind of simplified that even more. 
He said, we have to convince our heroes of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. So we need to understand that we are sinners. We need to understand that, that we, we are creatures of the dirt, have defied a holy God. And so until we come to terms with that, we're going to struggle to understand what it means to, to meet a Savior. But Paul, he, he looks at this bad news, but then he spends so much time talking about the good news in verses 4 through 7. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So, that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So I wish we had more time to go through that. Maybe next time. I don't know if I get another walking Sunday. <laughs> so right away. Paul's clearing the air of, of, can you earn your salvation? Like, can you work to be good enough for God to love you? And sometimes we're, we're so convinced that we need to be good enough to earn our salvation. But Paul very makes it so clear that God saves us because of His mercy, not because of any good works on our part. This is something that makes Christianity so fundamentally different from any other religion. This is the only religion where the God of the universe comes to you and says, you are not good enough, but I'll meet you where you're at. I will go above and beyond what you are capable of doing. You might not be able to save yourself, but fortunately you don't have to. And, and I remember hearing something where it's like you can put, your, put a gun to the head of somebody and make them a fairly good Muslim. You can put a gun to their head and make them a fairly good atheist. But you can't put a gun to somebody's head and make them a fairly good Christian. Because the Christian life is something that totally changes you from the inside out. So Tim Keller, he, he once described it like this. He said, other religions teach you that if you obey, you will be accepted by God. The gospel teaches that I am accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ, and therefore I obey. So Paul, he talks of our new life in Christ that began when our hearts were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And it's after that regeneration that our heart becomes open to the gospel. And then when we repent and turn to Christ, we become justified by his grace. And we become heirs according to the hope of eternal Life. So this is the message that, that we are all called to proclaim. We have the greatest news in all of the world to share, and that's that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners. And despite all the bad that you have done, His forgiveness is still freely given to you as you come to Him in faith. So we need to ask, have we come to Him in faith? Have we, have we accepted the true gospel? Have we not just accepted the American dream and said that this is the gospel right here? We need to know that Christ is the only way for eternal life. He's the greatest treasure that we could ever receive. And so there's, there's one more verse, and that's verse 8, what we really see caps off, I hope the Lord accomplishes through me, what I ultimately hope that you as believers accomplish with the gospel. Paul says in verse 8, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul, he's telling Titus, insist the truth of the gospel. Don't turn back. You, you have before you the truth of eternal life. Don't let that change. But preach the word. Remind the congregation of who they are in Christ, what God has done for them, and how, how we are to respond to the grace and mercy that's been given. So my hope, and I told the kids this on Wednesday night, I hope they see this in me. I want them to see someone who is in love with these truths, that is pushing for these truths, that reminds them day in and day out of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So my hope is that as we continue to dive into 
the gospel as, as a ministry that we feel compelled to do the good works that go with being followers of Christ. So we know that these are, like Paul says, excellent and profitable things. So I'm going to pray for us real quickly. Um, and my hope is that as we pray, we, we're a ministry that relies on these truths, that, that doesn't lose track of what the gospel really is, that remembers what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you have not accepted these truths yet, or if you're not familiar with these truths, you know, we'll be around afterwards. We would love to talk to you, Wayne and I, any of the deacons. Uh, we want you to truly know Jesus Christ and what his gospel is. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we're so thank you for your word. We're so thankful for the reminder of, of who you are. And, and I know that sometimes it's easy for, for Christians to lose sight of what the gospel really is. And I just pray that, that we don't forget these truths, that we never forget that you came into the world to save sinners. And it's only by your grace and your mercy and kindness that, that we have hope. So let us never lose sight of that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.